It's kind of hard to stop you having fellowship together after a message on 1 John, right? But I get to fine each of you a quarter if you don't sit down in the next 10 seconds. Which is going to fund our lunch today. No. All right, let's uh, let's get started. Uh, thank you, uh, Brother Ken, for a um, marvelous message. You know, one of the blessings of a conference like this for the speaker in particular is to be able to listen to someone else, uh, to not just have to hear the sound of my voice. And I can speak for my wife and daughters that I'm sure they're very happy that they're not only listening to Daddy and uh, their husband speak as well. So uh, thank you, Brother Ken, for that uh, marvelous ministry. I look forward to the rest of it, as I whispered to him when he was handing me the mic, it was wonderful ministry, but challenging as well, as it should be. Uh, it shouldn't just be the sun that's making you a little uncomfortable in your seats today uh, as the Spirit of God wrestles with your heart. I did misquote something last night. Let me clarify that. Ken, thank you for bringing that out. Um, I, I misquoted the number last night. When I time myself, it takes me 60 hours to read the Bible, about 45 hours the Old Testament, 15 in the New. No single book should take you more than two hours. Now, you've been assigned one of the what I call the 15 minuters. Uh, the first John uh, is one of those 15 minutes. So you could read first John twice in the same amount of time as you can watch one of your hideous sitcoms. Right. So um, trying try to think about that, making that a, a weekly event together. But um, one of the things, of course, that we're hoping to challenge you this week is in your study of God's word. Uh, and in the reading of it, as I frequently said, and I know I've said it even at this conference before, um, it, it's, I had the privilege this morning of taking a beautiful run out to Mirror Lake. I don't know if you've had a chance to get out there early in the morning. It's very aptly named Mirror Lake. Uh, now, I'm not uh, Ricky, so I can't take photos like Ricky, but I tried to take a picture this morning, and you couldn't really tell if the mountain was above the lake or, below, or in the lake because of the, the reflection. Um, but I always think of that, that, that person who goes down to the lake with their sieve, you know, the, the uh, colander, whatever it is, you rinse your Kraft macaroni and cheese in. And, um, and he's dipping his sieve into the water. And every time he dips it in, the water flows right out. And someone comes up to him and says, dude, don't you know you're never going to capture any water that way? And he says, yeah, absolutely right. But look how clean the sieve is. And so sometimes you might feel that the word of God, as you read it, kind of goes through your head and, and goes right out. And I didn't remember the sentence I just read. And that may have an impact. That may happen to you. But let me reassure you, as it's going through, it's cleaning your head. And all of us need our heads cleaned very regularly. So we trust uh, the study of God's word will encourage us this week. Let's turn to Isaiah, please. Uh, hopefully each of you have been given one of the handouts that we have for the week. Uh, please keep it for the whole of the week. As you can see, we've got seven different Uh, messages outlined there, Lord willing, for the six mornings and one evening assigned to me. But before we dive into it a little bit more, let's read a few verses together from Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, and these are the four kings uh, that he prophesied during their reign, uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O ye, O heavens... And give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. And you stop right there for a moment. You think, okay, this is the book of Isaiah, right? This is the book that I'm sure most of you can quote portions of it. Beautiful pictures of the Lord Jesus. Marvelous 
uh, uh, times often we, we seem to relegate the book of Isaiah to the Lord's Supper. Not that that's a bad thing, of course. It's a wonderful thing to read it there. But we often don't read outside the Lord's Supper. You think, let's start on a very encouraging note, shall we? Um, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. We're barely into verse 2. And Isaiah is, if you will, laying into his people appropriately. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Isn't this uplifting? Um, why? Okay, that was a joke. You're allowed to laugh at those, okay? Um, why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been clothed, neither bound up, neither uh, uh, mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. I'm rather thankful that the book of Isaiah doesn't end right there. Um, That would not be a particularly encouraging note. But let's just move over a few verses. uh, Come to verse 16. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes and cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And in there we have this beautiful balance that we see throughout the prophets. For those who weren't here last night, what we plan to cover are the major prophets and a couple of minors as a bonus towards the end of the week. Not As I mentioned last night, they're not major because they're better. They have the same God, but major because more uh, their books are, are longer in the Old Testament. And we noted last night that there were five major themes of all of these prophets. God is holy. We are sinful. There is judgment for sin. A Messiah is provided. And there's a future restoration of his people under the reign of that Messiah. And we're going to see different colors and flavors of those five lessons. We're going to learn a little bit more about the precision of God in trying to reach out to his people. We're going to learn a lot about his patience. I was enjoying listening to that last message, as I trust you were, thinking about how often have we offended the Lord and offended our families and offended the loved ones in our assemblies. And yet the patience of God persists. It's marvelous. Shall shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But what a wonderful Savior who says to us, as we heard this morning, If we confess our sins, he's faithful, not only faithful to do it, he's just to do it. He has the authority to do it, to forgive us our sins. And so today I want to think with you a little bit about the book of Isaiah. Lord willing, tomorrow we'll look at Jeremiah. Tomorrow night we'll look at Lamentations. There's so much, of course, that we could say 
uh, about this approach, as we mentioned last night. I really just want to sort of hit the tops of the trees. We'll, we'll dive down a little bit here and there, read a few portions, because very often we don't get that balcony view of each of these books of the Scriptures. And one of the things to note, of course, as we go through, are going to be the names of the individuals even that wrote these books. You know, it's marvelous, isn't it, how this is God's Word. This is not Isaiah's Word. I want to be careful how I say that because we want to make sure that we retain what the Scripture teaches us. I, I like to think of it this way. When, when God breathed the Word of God, when He wrote, if you will, the Word of God, it's His precise words that He wanted recorded on the page. But... In demonstrating his love for humanity, he did so, if you will, with different pens. You know how you have a certain kind of handwriting? You know, when we go to medical school, they teach us how to write badly. That's basically how it works, right? Um, But, you know, if I use a, a black pen or a blue pen or a thick pen or a thin pen, it's still my handwriting, but you note that there are some differences based on the kind of pen that's used. And so it is in the Word of God that the Lord beautifully uses the pens of these different individuals. We know that the Word of God was written over hundreds of years by at least 40 authors. Really, ultimately, as we say, one author, the Lord himself. But he was able to use those pens. And, and so it's marvelous to see examples of that. Um, we, we think of uh, um, Paul as a tremendous thinker, right? Some would say that if the Apostle Paul lived today, he would have the equivalent of at least two PhDs. And the Lord used him to write, he knew no sin. Speaking of the Lord Jesus. Peter, what do you think of Peter? You think of sort of an action man, right? He's the fisherman, he's doing, he's cutting people's ears off. Like he's just, he's just, you know, he's, he's trying to, he's, he's a goer, he's a doer. He's, let's go, let's do this, let's do that. What did he say of the Lord Jesus? He did no sin. And then we've been hearing about the Apostle John. The one who rested on the trust of the Lord himself. Who defines for us this beautiful link between intimacy and revelation. It's no wonder he wrote the book of Revelation. What did he say of the Lord Jesus? In him was no sin. Now those are three factual statements regarding the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus. They were all originated by the word of God himself. But see how the Lord used different pens to influence the way that was stated. It's beautiful, isn't it? And so we're going to see that as we go through, because we're going to note how Isaiah's prophecy was quite different than that of Jeremiah. Isaiah, and, and, and the Lord bless us, even as we share ministry this week and in the various conferences and within your own assembly, we know that not every speaker is the same. We're thankful for that, aren't we? Um, and that's one of the, the reasons why I believe we practice the New Testament principles the way we do, is that there is that balance. And, and there are those who are, you know, the John the Baptist type, right? You know, they'll go and eat locusts and come out there and yell sort of fire and brimstone. Um, and and uh, the, the uh, if you will, the Elijah types. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about Elijah this year, you know, uh, th- this week, who, who was, you know, so forceful in the way he spoke. And Isaiah was a little bit like that. Isaiah had a tender side to him that we see in his friendship and relationship with King Hezekiah. But by contrast, there's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who is so tender and soft and yet still could speak forcefully to the people when they were uh, ca- uh, ca- captured in their own sins. 
And so it's beautiful. We see even, again, amongst these prophets. And sometimes if you just say, let's just study Isaiah chapter 6, you might not see that big picture of how the Lord uses these different individuals. And so hopefully we'll see some of that as we go through. So in your handout here, we've listed various verses that we'll come to read in a few minutes. Um, But uh, I I hate to put uh, priority on any books, but when people think of finding pictures of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament, they very often come to the book of Isaiah, don't we? And we'll look at some of them as we go through. So he's often thought of the beloved of the prophets because of this beautiful imagery that we see of the Messiah uh, here in, in the, in the, throughout the book of Isaiah. But let's read a couple of portions together to help us see and understand this book a bit, be- bit better. Come with me to chapter 2, please. And we'll do, as I say, a little tops of the trees to get the flavor of the book. And you may not realize until we do this how many of those verses that you know that you've heard quoted in so many ways are all uh, within this, these uh, 66 chapters. Chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. You can tell now that we're looking further ahead. Remember we mentioned last night that there's some prophecies that immediately occur and others that occur in the near future and others that occur in the distant future. And we commented, remember, that uh, like those two mountains that you see in the distance look like one mountain, that often these, these, these prophets couldn't distinguish between the first coming of Christ and his suffering and his glorious return when he establishes his millennial and ultimate reign. And so often these two are intermixed together, which is why it's, it's I think, very good for us as we study this to recognize that phenomenon because we're so built chronologically, right? We always think that we have to put everything in time order. And sometimes in some of these prophets, their chapters, you wonder why they're in that order, but it was God designed order because they're not necessarily chronological. Because remember, we're dealing with a God that is not bound by time, right? I mean, I know there's one or two sports fans here, right? So you know what it's like when you're in the middle of the game, the clock is is defines the game, right? I mean, half of football is clock management, isn't it? And it's all about because you're living in that zone. You can't step out of that. You can't turn the clock back. Well, I guess if the referee, you can ask them to turn the clock back. But in general, you you can't do that, right? You're bound by that. That's what our life is like in a sense. But there's no timeouts, right? There's no two minute warning. I mean, the clock is constantly moving. But we deal with the Lord Jesus. And in that beautiful vision that we'll talk of in Daniel, remember when he saw the man standing above the river? Doesn't matter how cold or hot the river was. As he stood above it. What's that to say? When your feet are above the water, the water's flowing. Time is going past and it doesn't touch him. Are you thankful today that you have a God who's not touched by time? Because there isn't a single person here today who isn't touched by time. I mean, look at my head. It's definitely grayer than it was last year, right? I mean, we are all touched by time. But Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, sorry, back to verse 3. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And if you've ever been to New York City and gone to the United Nations headquarters, 
you can read uh, these words etched in stone at the second half of this verse. And he shall judge among the nations and, they, and shall rebuke many people. And this is what's written there. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Even the political powers of this planet recognize the value of that statement. Now, you and I know this hasn't happened yet. Right? I mean, God bless Merca. Uh, we tend to be pretty focused on what's going on here. But there are over 100 wars going on in this planet as we speak. Many of whom don't make the headline news. But there will become a day. Imagine it. I just love the imagery. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Imagine a warless planet. Well, there's only one situation in which that can occur, and that's when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords leads this planet and is ruling over it. Come over, please, to chapter 6. These were quoted to us yesterday in the Lord's Supper in a beautiful prayer to us, and you, you quite likely know this, but again, emphasizing that first of the five major themes that we discussed, the holiness of God, Chapter 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with the twain he covered his face, with the twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another, said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, which, of course, we get to see more of this week. It's hard not to appreciate the glory of the Lord here, isn't it? I was privileged this morning getting up pretty early from my run that I had uh, no one around me and it was completely uh, uh, quiet around the falls this morning and through almost the whole of the trail uh, uh, to Mirror Lake. And I just, at one point, I literally just stopped and said, my Lord made this. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the people of unclean lips. So there again, theme two, recognizing our own sinfulness. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. So again, themes three and four captured there already, that there is a provision that judgment of sin is real, but there is a provision to overcome that. Turn to, just over to chapter 7, one verse, uh, verse 14, uh, as we come to thinking about how that provision is going to come. Again, we tend to save these verses for Christmas time, and we shouldn't. We should be able to read them at any time. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We could spend hours today just looking at those titles of the Lord Jesus. Come over to chapter 11. There shall come forth, verse 1, uh, 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 forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch grow out of his roots. So we are now hearing about this individual, specifically what family they're coming out of. 
And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Each of these we could study on their own. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor. See the difference between God and you? The difference between God's ways and the scripture says, uh, man, man, uh, even speaking here, of course, of the life of David. Remember when Samuel's to anoint him, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. You and I are confined more often than not to our physical senses. I'm not giving you a medical lesson here and I promise not to bore you. But between our sight and our hearing and our taste and our feel, we're, we're so bound by those. But here is one who judges above that river, if you will, above those senses. With righteousness shall he judge the poor. It's hard for you and I to think righteously confined to the bodies that we have. No wonder we needed to be born again. We needed spiritual life to be able to make those distinctions. And it's that spiritual side that can make that distinction. Because we can look at a question and if we look at it purely physically and say, no, this is the right physical answer. But it can be very different spiritually. And that's the judgment that the Lord brings. And reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. You know, can I give you some homework this morning? Um, can I drop a little bit of homework here and there? There's an interesting word. I won't take time to, to re- reveal it to you in great detail. But this word rod comes up a lot particularly in the book of Isaiah. You might want to uh, look at that and why that is. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. And look, look what happens when this righteous one comes. It defies the physical. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the, li- and the young lion together, uh, young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. I don't know about you, but, you know, you go to the zoo, you're kind of glad that there are like walls and fences and glass dividers between your children and the tigers. My, my daughters quite like seeing tigers and lions and bears. Oh, my. But um, and uh, but I'm thankful that there is a barrier there. Imagine a little child leading them. That could only happen under under the Lord. Um, it goes on. The cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp. Really? I mean, how many of us really like snakes? They creep us out mostly, right? There's a few of you that like them. It's your prerogative. Creeping me a bit, but that's okay. But imagine the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp and the weaned child shall put his hand in the cockatrice's dren. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You want to do another? I promise not to give you too much homework, but one more. Um, Note in the whole of the scriptures, every time it says the earth is filled or full with something. There aren't that many things. It's about half a dozen of them. And this is one of them. Shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord and goes back, of course, to speak more about the Messiah. Uh, but again, I just want to give you uh, the overview. Come over to chapter 24, please. We'll put this all together in a few minutes. Chapter 24, verse one. Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty and maketh it waste and turneth it upside down and scattereth abroad 
the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with the master, as with the maid, so with the mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the taker of usury, so with the giver of the usury. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord hath spoken his word. And I chose these verses to include because it reminds us that the inequities of life that we might see now between the rich and the poor, those that have, those that have not, those that have authority and those that have not authority, can be equaled and leveled because of our Lord. We put so much stock now. I even tried to teach our residents and fellows. I had the privilege of being our postgraduate dean, and just last week I welcomed our whole new crew of residents and fellows. They always start July 1st. <clears throat> Don't go to a teaching hospital the first week of July. Uh, sorry, did I say that? <laughs> Are my thoughts being broadcast? But um, so, uh, And so I welcomed them, and I reminded them. I said, you know, your CV is important. What you achieve, the papers you write, the, the degrees that you have are important. There's only one place in the world you are indispensable, and that's at home. And our world so often puts such great importance on not really who we are, but what we've done. And someone introduces them, themselves to you and they just want to tell you about all the accomplishments they have or all the positions they have. That, that's, that's what you do. That's not who you are. The Lord is not interested today in your position and standing before men and women. He's interested in you. Not what you've done or accomplished, but who you genuinely are. He has that ability, and I think it's a theme of Isaiah, it, the personality. Isaiah actually has a beautiful character and personality. You don't think of him as one of the, the, the actively engaged people that we think of in the Old Testament when you think of Elijah or you think of David or, or, or even Absalom and some of these others that, that we know parts of their lives. We know a little less about the day-to-day life of Isaiah, but we see this tenderness within him. Come over to chapter 40, please. Just a few more of these, and then we'll go through the handout as you have it. Chapter 40, um, verse 1. One of my favorite date nights of the year with Heather is when we go uh, to hear uh, the Messiah. We make sure we try and do that every year. And for those of you who know that piece of music, you'll, you'll recognize these verses. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord, the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Now we could talk about the geographical analogy here, which is quite stunning to think that mountains like the one behind, I get the best view here, by the way, sadly you got the worst view, but nonetheless, um, you know, these imagine that the valleys and the mountains can be just leveled like that. It's amazing. God has that ability and, and the crooked ways made straight. But think of the spiritual implications of that. What crooked ways are there in your life? What hills and valleys have you struggled with in your life? Oh, the Lord can make that crooked way straight. He's got a plan for you. He's got a plan for me. He's fixing me. I'm not fixed yet. 
Far from it. But he can make those crooked ways straight. Uh, Come over to chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment, notice, to the Gentiles. We'll see this in just a moment. This isn't just a book for a small group of people in the uh, uh, nation of Israel, and specifically to Judah. This is to the whole of the planet. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break. That's that's a beautiful picture of what the Lord Jesus does, isn't it? You and I would see a a, a stick or or a reed, as it's said here, that's bruised or that's kind of bent. Oh, that's useless. We just toss it in the fire. Aren't you thankful he doesn't do that? The smoking flax he doesn't quench. Because he's interested in caring for us despite our brokenness. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set up judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. Don't be discouraged, Christian. He will reign. He won't fail. I'm not going to get political, of course. It's a tough time to get political with all that's going on in our country and across the world. But imagine a leader who doesn't fail. Imagine a one, one who will indeed achieve all that he set out to do. That's the kind of leader that we have. Well, time's going quickly, so it breaks my heart not to read uh, Isaiah 53, but you know these verses so well. As I mentioned, don't just save them for the Lord's Supper, please. Uh, you, please read them at other times. But come over uh, to um, Isaiah 61. We'll just read two more portions. 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives to the, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma. I'm not saying that the Lord wrote with commas, right? I, I, I hope you understand that. And the day of vengeance of our God. For those of you who understand what I'm saying, you know why I'm focusing on that comma, right? Because that's where we are right now. These are the words that the Lord Jesus read when it was his turn. Oh, coincidence, right? That it was his turn to read this portion in the synagogue or in the the temple that day. And, And what does he read? He reads these words to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stops. And of course, they were incensed that he stopped reading. Because in stopping, it clearly insinuated that he was the one of whom this prophecy was speaking. That he was willing to pause it there. And I think it's beautiful when it describes the patience of of our Lord and his blessing to his people. What is it described as? The acceptable year of the Lord. We're living in that, if you will, year When it comes to his judgment that will come at the end, how is it described? The day of vengeance of our God. So for the people who read this Bible and think God's in a hurry to get upset and keeps throwing fire and brimstone down from heaven, they're not reading the right Bible. 
the irony, of course, of that day when the Lord Jesus read that was that he closed the book, said, today this has been fulfilled in your eyes. They were so incensed that they took him out to the hill there. You might want to learn some geography of where they were. And they wanted to throw him, cast down, cast him down into the valley. But he graciously passed in their midst. You know what valley that is? It's the Valley of Armageddon. Where, if you will, the centerpiece of the day of vengeance of our God. It's like they wanted to invoke it right then. But the patience of our God was such that he just passed through their midst and didn't let it happen. Marvelous, the patience of our Lord. Final verse, a final a few verses of the whole of the book, Isaiah 66, please, uh, chapter 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. So despite the challenging commencement of this book, there is obviously a clear hope for the future. What can we say about uh, the book of Isaiah in our last seven or eight minutes here? Well, um, the author. Remember how I mentioned watch for names? Well, Isaiah literally means salvation is of the Lord, which is why I've given the title of this book today, Salvation is of uh, the Lord. As you noted in my hand in a handout here, that it's mentioned 26 times in the book of Isaiah, but only seven other times in all of the other prophets. This this word salvation. Um, some people have questioned the authorship of the book of Isaiah, and I won't get into all the arguments for and against. To me, it's clear, obviously, as the Lord has preserved the word of God, it was viewed as one book. The Dead Sea Scrolls support that. But perhaps more importantly, as I've shown you here in John 12, we won't read them. But when um, Isaiah is quoted in John 12, two portions of Isaiah are quoted from Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 as, as both coming from the prophet Isaiah. So for me, that unites the book, because for those who want to divide it into two or three Isaiahs or different individuals, it wouldn't make sense to quote the same one as those two together. As you see here, it's the second most quoted book in the whole of the New Testament outside of the book of Psalms. um, And it's quoted by John the Baptist, Matthew, John, and indeed Paul. So Isaiah lived around 740 BC. Now, again, remember our time frame. I know I sound a bit redundant when I say this, but you didn't learn the alphabet the first time you heard it. As I like to say, 4,000 B.C. is Adam. 3,000 B.C. is Noah. 2,000 B.C. is Abraham. 1,000 B.C. is David. Remember, most of the Old Testament lands in that period of time between about 1,500 uh, B.C. and 500 B.C. Most of the Old Testament is there. Because as we've said before, the first 12 chapters of Genesis is the first half of the Old Testament. That's how I can read Genesis in 40 minutes, Ken, wherever he said. I can can cover half the Old Testament in the first 12 chapters. Um, But here then, if we expand out that time, so Abraham is 2,000, David is 1,000. Roughly in between, we've got Moses at about 1,500, right? So now we're we're in this portion in the last 1,000 until we come to about 400 B.C., where the Old Testament ends. And there's, as some people have called it, the 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the coming of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. And so Isaiah is in that period of time 
in the pre-exilic. We'll talk more about the exile uh, tomorrow and uh, later in the week, as we discussed a bit last year when we talked about Ezra and Nehemiah. But he's speaking to them before the Lord takes them into exile. But politically at the time, to the north is Assyria, right, which would be sort of modern-day Jordan and Assyria. And to the south is Egypt. So often in the Old Testament, when you hear about the north and the south, it refers to Assyria and to Egypt. Now, with time, there'll be issues with Babylon as well, because Babylon is going to rise again, and we're going to see that as obviously a big part of the captivity. But that becomes an interesting piece, that this tiny little nation of Israel is wedged between two superpowers. And often when those superpowers fight against each other, they get into trouble. And as you know, in that intertestament period, this is what ultimately became known in the Old Testament uh, fulfillment of the prophecy of the abomination that maketh desolation. When one of the Assyrian leaders came down to fight against the, the Egyptians, and when he was there, there was a false rumor that he had been killed, and the Jews were celebrating because they used to you know, get caught in the crossfire. So he went back and delivered, tragically, the first of many holocausts, if you will. It was awful what he did to the Jewish people, including putting a pig on the offering of burnt sacrifice. So took what was most unclean to them and put it in the holiest of all. That was a tragic event. And that, of course, speaks ultimately to how uh, the, this human planet of ours is going to think of the offering of uh, the Lord Jesus. So he's living in that time frame around 740 uh, B.C., as I've listed here. And he prophesies for the better part of 60 years until the death of Sennacherib. Uh, and he lives through these four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, who was quite wicked, and Hezekiah. So he didn't get a free ride, right? He wasn't always there during happy times. He was there during happy and challenging times. And he uh, mostly was a prophet towards uh, Judah. As, we, as you know, of course, there was a division within, within the nation uh, after Solomon uh, into Judah and, to Is- and Israel. Most of the prophets we'll discuss this week focused on Judah. So what is the theme? As I've mentioned, it's really salvation is of the Lord, applicable to not only the nation itself, but to the Gentiles. The numbers just happen to work out this way, kind of like the division of your Old Testament, New Testament. But as we said last night, the book is written as a book, not in chapters. But the first 39 chapters and the subsequent 27 chapters form a natural division. And it's ironic, isn't it, that they divide in a way that points us to the gospel. Because the first 39 chapters talk about our need for salvation. Start with that picture of us, this, this horrible, putrefying sores that we read. You know, imagine someone that is so sick and is trying to, if you will, convince us, much like the first several chapters of the book of Romans, before the Lord gives a solution, he has to diagnose the problem. Again, I'm not trying to give you too much medical speak, but I can't help care for my patients until I properly diagnose the problem. So, so, if you will, the Lord diagnoses our problem. And what's your problem? Your problem is sin. Your problem is not circumstances. Your problem is not your genetics. Yes, your genetics are flawed by sin too. Why should we be surprised by that? Don't, don't be discouraged, Christians, if we come up with time and demonstrate certain genes affiliated with certain behaviors. You can't say, I can't, I, it's not my fault, just blame my genes. Right? Because that's what the world is working towards. They ultimately want to remove any responsibility for their behavior activity to say, I was born with this 
or, or that. And yes, people are born with tendencies towards various sins. We've, we've been able to document that, whether it is alcoholism or uh, homosexuality and others. We can find that. We can demonstrate that these that individuals who engage in that kind of activity have a different genetic pattern. Does that excuse them of it? The Lord makes it very clear that it's, that's not the case. That we were born in sin, shaped in iniquity. Right? That's as close as you can get to saying our genes are flawed. But that doesn't relieve of, release, uh, relief, uh, release us of that responsibility. And so the Lord wants to make it very clear, kind of like the methodical argument that is made in the book of Romans, which is so clear, saying, look at all the different ways you are guilty. You're guilty this way, you're guilty that way. So that literally, when the defendant uh, or the defendant's lawyer stands up, they got nothing to say. Because the plaintiff has made the case already. And yet, we see in the subsequent chapters, as I've listed here, the need for salvation, their judgment of sin, um, uh, that salvation is provided. I'm so thankful that God is not a diagnostician only. I'll let you in on something in medicine. We, we kind of, sometimes we probably shouldn't, but we kind of make fun of our neurology friends. Um, you know, when I was on the neurology service, when I was a medical resident, I used to jokingly say, um, uh, a neurology diagnosis and adios. Oh, what? what? No. Um, so, uh, and, and I'm not making fun of them, but we often used to say that, that you know, neurologists could could pinpoint the problem with the, in this, within this tiny little spot in the brain, but we can't do anything about it. <laughs> and thankfully, neurology has, has evolved quite a bit. I've just offended every neurologist on the planet, but um, has evolved a bit that they do have therapeutic interventions. But God is not a diagnostician only. He not only knows your problem, he's got a solution for it. And that solution we read together was in the birth of that beautiful and wonderful Savior. That one who is wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and indeed the Prince of Peace. Oh, we could say so much more uh, about it, but for time's sake, I'll have to close in a couple of minutes. But I've listed here for you what I would consider the key passages. We'll, we'll do this as we look at each of these books. We'll look at major themes for each one. Isaiah, of all of them, is, is a challenging book in its order, um, but it is one in which we see these themes so beautifully pervasive. I won't read them all to you here as we've read many of those together, but those are key passages, and I try to provide an outline for you uh, uh, for each of them. But again, as we close, looking at the top here, looking at the ba- from the balcony view of the book of Isaiah, he gives us these marvelous, precious pictures of the Lord Jesus. But he shows to us unequivocally how ugly sin is. You know, you and I are very good at making light of sin. But he shows to us how truly ugly it is. I would argue that one of the key hallmarks of a false prophet, as we'll see, because we're going to read about the good prophets, of course, but false prophets rose up during their time. A key hallmark of the false prophet is one who makes light of sin. We'll see that with Jeremiah tomorrow. That there are people who came up and said, eh, your sin's not a big deal. But Isaiah called a spade a spade, as we say. But praise God that he has a solution for it. Your sin doesn't have to wear you down today. And that we have a future 
that we are going to participate in that millennial reign of Christ, in that eternal reign of Christ. We are going to experience life on this planet the way it was meant to be lived. And indeed, an eternity with our Lord. We have that hope. And that this isn't just a, I kind of hope sort of it's going to work out like I hope my team might win the game. No, this is a guarantee from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords himself. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to be here today. We're so thankful for every opportunity to learn more about the Lord Jesus. We're thankful that we find him on every beautiful page of this book and all the books that we study together. We're thankful that it is really about him. Father, we are humbled when we think of how much effort has been put in to dealing with our sin problem. But we're so thankful that the Lord Jesus is the only solution. Bless us today. Encourage us both in our study of God's word, but our enjoyment of our fellowship together here. Help us to enjoy these surroundings and enjoy our fellowship one with another. In Jesus' name, amen.